and 34 as we get started tonight. Good to have a melody ringing while the wind's blowing and the rain and all that other stuff. Amen. 434. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still. In all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing of my heart, keeps me singing as I go. All my life was wrecked by sin and strife, discord filled my heart with pain. Jesus swept across the broken strings, stirred the slumbering chords again. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing of my heart, keeps me singing as I go. Feasting on the riches of his grace, resting neath his sheltering wing. Always looking on his smiling face, that is why I shout and sing. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Though sometimes he leads through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, see his footprints all the way. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing of my heart, keeps me singing as I go on that last. Soon he's coming back to welcome me, far beyond the starry sky. I shall wing my flight to worlds unknown, I shall reign with him on high. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing of my heart, keeps me singing as I go. Isn't that a wonderful hymn? Let's try 420. 420, my anchor holds. Might need an anchor with all this rain tonight, huh? Here we go. Though the angry surges roar, on my tempest-driven sore, I am peaceful for I know, wildly low the winds may blow, I've an anchor safe and sure, that can evermore endure, and my anchor holds my anchor. While you are and okay, on my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail, for my within 
Angry clouds will shade the sky, and the tempest rises high. Still I stand, the tempest shock, for my anchor grips a rock, and it holds my anchor hold. Blow your wildest and all gale, for my anchor shall not fail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears a heavy strain through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide and it holds my anchor hold blow your wildness and old gale on my bark so small and frail by his grace I shall not fail for my anchor hold my on that last troubles almost whelm us all grief like billows round me rolled tempters strike to lure us stray storms to cure the light of day but in Christ I can be born I've an anchor that shall hold and it holds my anchor hold Though you wildness and no gale, on my bark so small and frail, by his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. And then let's go to page 516. We're going to be talking about anchors tonight, so we might as well sing both songs. Amen. I always get them mixed up and pick the wrong one, so I can't do it wrong tonight. I got both of them. Amen. 516. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold, their wings of strife. When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps us so steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is safely moored till the storm withstand. For tis well secured by the Savior's hand. And the cables pass from his heart to mine can define that blast through strength divine. We have an anchor that keeps us so steadfast and sure while the pillows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, 
grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It will firmly hold in the straits of fear. When the breakers have told the reef is near. Oh, the tempest rave and the wild winds blow. Not an angry wave shall our bark overflow. We have an anchor that keeps us soul. Stand fast and sure while the billows roll. Fasten to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. On that last, when our eyes behold through the gathering night, the city of gold are ever bright. We shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms all past forevermore. We have an anchor that keeps us home. Stand fast and sure while the pillows roll. Fasten to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one that has braved the weather and all of the discomforts of being out in a night like tonight to be here. Lord, we do not take that for granted. We just praise you that uh, people have priorities set as they ought to. Church is more important than these other things. We ask for safety on the trip home tonight, that we would all gather together Sunday morning praising your name for your goodness and your work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us during this time, that this time would be well spent, that you would reward each soul for the effort uh, given tonight that we would learn from your word, that we would go forth from this place better equipped to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And um, just ask you to uh, keep things in prayer. We're trying to finish up some molding tomorrow afternoon. And. Uh, just a few more little things, some handrails, racks, and all of that, and, and uh, then we might get to the point to where we can let this thing set a couple of weeks, which I wouldn't complain about at all, so appreciate your prayers there. Um, some of you may know and some of you may not know, um, we're going to probably, I guess, need to have a business meeting uh, Sunday morning just shortly after church. Um, we, uh, for I don't know how many years, uh, we were on a sharing program to take care of health, and health costs and doctors. It, well, just did, didn't do doctors. And we had a, uh, basically a, a set up here through the church. In August, we got a letter saying, our program is no longer in service. Goodbye. And uh, that was it. And, and so uh, uh, since that time, whatever spare time we could find, I've been trying to uh, locate something that we could put in for health care coverage and uh, down to two basic choices and uh, how many you want to hear about it tonight or just take care of it Sunday uh, 
I think we can just take care of it Sunday. Just a quick overview. One is a uh, hospitalization only with a medical savings account hooked to it, and the other is actually uh, I found an HMO that would give us group rates, even though we're not a group. And uh, so that seems to be the best option, but uh, I'll try to have something printed up for you Sunday you can look at and, and compare the two, but uh, that's one thing that uh, we just kind of need to take care of if we could. Uh, and so um, I'm thinking that's all the regular announcements other than visitation. We'll try to pass out some tracks uh, Saturday and also uh, regular services on Sunday, so be in prayer about those things, and uh, we'll just keep serving the Lord. Amen. Uh, also, I believe Shirley Lynn is headed back here to uh, the United States on Monday. Isn't that right, George? Shirley's coming back Monday? Okay, so keep her in prayer for safe travels, and uh, well, and that's I. We haven't gotten an update from Bob and Becky since they w tried to go back to the Ivory Coast, so keep them in prayer. Last week, they were trying to move back into the Ivory Coast, and so as soon as we hear something, uh, we'll let you know, but until that day, uh, let's pray for them, amen, and, uh, because things can be quite dangerous at times there. All right, let's sing one more song, 444, My Sins Are Blotted Out, I Know, 444 get into the Bible study tonight. 444. <clears throat> What a wondrous message in God's Word. My sins are blotted out, I know. If I trust in His redeeming blood, my sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. They are buried in the depths of the deepest sea. My sins are blotted out, I know. Once my heart was black, but now what joy? My sins are blotted out, I know. I have peace and nothing can destroy. My sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. They are buried in the depths of the deepest sea. My sins are blotted out, I know. I shall stand someday before my King. My sins are blotted out, I know. With the ransom host I then shall seek, my sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. My sins are blotted out, I know. They are buried in the depths of the deepest sea. My sins are blotted out, I know. Amen. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 6. This is our sixth week 
in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and uh, we're going to try, believe it or not, to finish the chapter tonight. And uh, do not want to lose sight of everything that we have studied in the first three verses, nor do I want to take time to review uh, the last uh, five weeks' lessons in, in the first three verses here, but the idea is once you have salvation, there is no going back. Once you truly have God's salvation, you're not headed back to the world from which you came. There are many people who make that journey. They come out and for a while they'll continue and they'll do right and they'll show up at church, sometimes every service. But there will always be something that will stop them and they will find themselves back out in the world again. Now, that's one of the problems that the uh, um, many different churches over the years have tried to solve. Um, if you study the history of the persecuted church, uh, many of the churches in the former Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc there, Eastern Europe and Russia, Many of them to this day believe that you can lose your salvation. And the reason they believe that is because they've seen people who talk like a Christian, walk like a Christian, and do everything that a Christian does until something very serious comes. The line is drawn. Maybe they're going to be put in prison if they do not deny their faith in Christ. Maybe they're or stop attending church, maybe something catastrophic is going to happen to them, and they quit. And people say, well, they were just as much a Christian as I was before that date, so they had to have been saved. Now, wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? You see, the Bible does not give you and I the right to run around and checking people's salvation. It's not an ID card. You ever go into a place where you have to have an ID card and they pull it out and they say, okay, I got my ID card. I can go into Home Depot now and uh, purchase this. That's not the way salvation works, amen? Salvation is a work that God does in your heart. And when God does it, it can't be undone, amen? And so what these verses are telling us is once you are saved, it's time to get in gear and start moving forward. And where we're headed is perfection. Amen? And that perfection will be fully realized in heaven one day as we will be truly and totally perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ in every sense of the word. But God is not looking for sinless perfection while we live here on earth. He's just looking for simple obedience. If we can just get a hold of that. So, so many of us, we spend so much time in our service to God browbeating ourselves because we do not measure up to what our standard 
of righteousness or what we feel that we ought to be doing for Christ. It doesn't work that way. You get saved because God saved you. No other reason. And by the way, he just wants us to ask. We have to go there. The Calvinist says you get saved whether you want to or not. That just doesn't make sense, does it? The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. So as you call upon the name of the Lord, He saved you. He wants you to do some things. And so we start in verse 4 tonight. For it is impossible. So we're talking about something impossible here. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, it's really interesting to read someone's commentary on this passage who believes you can lose your salvation. Uh, I think it was a Mr. Clark. I have his commentaries. He was a Methodist, and and he believed that you could lose your salvation, and he, he labors this text, and he even admits in his own commentary that this is not really the passage that says you can lose your salvation, but there's lots of other ones that do but he doesn't tell you what they are. You know why? Because he's coming to the Bible with a predetermined conclusion. You read this passage. We, we just finished this uh, five weeks here. You find yourself laying again the foundation of repentance toward God. You find yourself trying to Uh, repent over and over again, you're not saved. That's the simple truth of it. Now, we've got to look at the grammar. I don't claim to be an English major. I've never joined the armed services of any country, let alone England. But, okay, I did get a few smiles there. I think some of you, we need to, maybe we need to get the coffee pot out and give everybody a big, strong cup of coffee on the way in uh, or turn the fans up maybe a little bit here or something. Um, yeah, Brother Ted, I think you're elected there. Uh, but we've got to look at the grammar. The words are important. They're put in here for an order. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And it goes on, and it begins to give what we call subordinate phrases or clauses here. And really what we need to do so that we can get the scope of the sentence that is here is we're going to just pull all of those clauses out of the sentence for a moment. Don't worry, we're going to go back and get them, all right? We're not going to deface Scripture. We're not going to skip over anything. But what we want to do is get the direction of the sentence here. It's for it is impossible for those. Now, let's just stop right there. That's where the phrases and clauses, actually clauses, subordinate clauses begin. And let's go to verse 6. For it is impossible for those if they 
shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, let's go back and catch that word, the first word of chapter verse 6. It is the word, if. I don't know if I should use this as an example or not, but that filthy scoundrel O.J. Simpson has written a book, what he would do if he had committed some murders. How many people have heard about that? I think everybody, just most everybody has. You know, shortest book ever written by O.J. Simpson is My Search for the True Killer. All he has to do is look in the mirror. Um, but anyway, he is going on television, and if you watch that thing, if you're thinking about watching that thing, you need to hit the altar here and spend some time getting right with God. Amen? I mean, come on. How, how low can we go? Well, O.J. is here again to help us. Amen? But the, the, when we use the word if, we are talking under normal circumstances about what we call a hypothetical situation. It's not real. For the sake of argument, we're going to give this to be the case. If communists were honest. Now, that's not possible. It is not possible for you to be a communist and to be honest because dishonesty is as much a part of communism as, be, as any other part of communism. You have to lie, cheat, steal, uh, and uh, 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 take advantage of people in order to be a communist. Because everything has to go into the hands of somebody. Because you can't have communism unless everything's distributed evenly. Now, what would it be like if everything, just take the group that's right here, if we elected one of our members to oversee all of our personal possessions, and you, that's one of the signs of a cult, by the way, and you give everything to them, you sign over your paycheck, and they're going to pay your bills for you. Do you think one person could handle all that? Wouldn't be too long before they were skimming a little off the top, wouldn't it? Man, I've got a lot of work to do. I'm writing everybody's thing here. I'm just going to order out dinner tonight. But it's not going to be McDonald's or the pizza place or gets a little nicer every time you get away with it. I mean, that's what our politicians do. It's not saying that this is true. It's not saying that it's even possible for this to happen. Just like if, a, if you know, if communists were honest. I mean, it's not possible. We're just, we're just giving that as a sake of an argument here. And if you could lose your salvation. It is absolutely impossible to get it back. Now, that's what the grammar says. 
here's the point. Seeing they crucify how? What's it say? Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now what this is saying is in the minds of these people, if they've fallen away, what they are doing is they are demanding the re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ because they believe in their own heart and in their own mind that the first time wasn't good enough. Now, if you do not believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, my friend, you are not saved and you never were. Now, you look at this and this is in itself the greatest indictment in the world against those people who believe that they can lose their salvation, is it not? It's a seeing they crucify to themselves. Jesus died once. And all God's people said, He was put to an open shame one time. Amen? I'm going to have to get my sermon on amen out. Think we're, I'm going to do it on Sunday morning because we, we just got to get this amen thing going again. But listen, Jesus died once. If that's not good enough for you, nothing else can be. If you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ, you're not saved. The one-time work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what the sentence is talking about. This entire passage is talking about the many people that we will meet through the years that will walk through the doors of this church, that will sit down among us, that will give us a testimony that I've been born again the Bible way, that will be baptized and join our church. And then something will happen. And poof, they're gone. Happened a lot of times, hasn't it? Now, if you move out of town, that's not evidence that you lost your salvation, okay? But if you quit your Christianity, it's because you never had it. I think I've told the story. I was only in Springfield, Missouri a week. I was knocking on doors for my first time in Springfield, Missouri and opened the door. And here came this guy to the door. It looked like he was left over from the mod squad. I mean, big old throat hairdo. And, and uh, no, he, you know, he was absolutely American guy. He was just trying to imitate that one fellow on the mod squad with the great big, how many of you remember that filthy show? Uh, anyway, he was there and opens the door, takes one look at me and says, you must be a student from Baptist Bible College. And I'm sitting there going, amazing that this specimen of depraved humanity could pick, this, pick me out so easily. 
He takes a big old drag on a cigarette and continues to blow the smoke in my face and tell me with the same breath that he was a student at Baptist Bible College too, but now he's really enjoying life. And I'm sitting here going, is this what Bible College is all about? Boy, this sounds like so much fun. He was part of the litter along the highway of life. Somebody had done something to him. He was injured. And he decided he's going to lay down beside the highway and die. If you're really saved, you can't do that, my friend. It's not possible for God to quit. Amen. That's what this passage is talking about. Now, the next verse here, look at verses 7 and 8. It says, For the earth which drinketh in rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursings whose end is to be burned. Now, most of us here have never had the experience that this is talking about, but in uh, the time period to the people that he wrote, most of these people were responsible for raising their own crops. When thorns... How many of you have ever walked through the woods and wandered into a briar patch by accident? Not a pleasant situation. Now, normally, briars and briars can only grow in poor soil. If you fertilize the ground and have a proper um, balance of chemicals in the ground, it in itself is the greatest deterrent to briars coming up and taking root there. Briars grow in rotten, poor, unhealthy soil. And I remember there was our neighbors had a patch of ground, and uh, they were in construction. And what they would do is they would take all their trash, and they would just throw it in the briar patch. You know, a little old rotten wallboard and broken up bricks and mortar and all that stuff. That's really good for soil, isn't it? Well, I mean, it was a thorough briar patch. And that briar patch had actually ex extended over onto a part of our property that we were trying to use for a garden. And my dad said, get up there and chop down those briars and dig it up and, and fertilize it and all of those things. You know, the first year, the briars came back. And we had to go through there and, and pull those things out and dig them out. Even, I mean, just even the parts of the roots. It took several years to straighten out that thing, that ground. And, of course, in those days, they didn't have all the great tools and deep plows and things that we have today and Fertilizer you didn't buy in a bag. You had to go shovel it out of the stall and, and all of those kinds of things. And so a bad patch of ground was often just 
going to remain a bad patch of ground because you were not physically able to do the things that needed to be done to restore that ground to the point to where it would produce. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand. There are just some patches of ground that no matter how good they look, you can't grow anything on them because they're rotten. There's nothing in the soil. Everything has been destroyed. Back here in the, in the United States in the 30s, we had what we called the Dust Bowl. We had drought followed by windstorms. And those windstorms came into those drought-devastated uh, areas and literally blew the topsoil, the good ground, away. There were places in this country where you go out and till the field and you do whatever you want and plant whatever you want and it wouldn't grow. And it's just amazing that all of that happened at the same time. We had the stock market crash in 1929 and I believe it was two or three years in a row uh, in the early 30s where uh, just huge areas of our Midwest were just completely destroyed of their ability to produce crops. Some of it was because they had overraised the land. They had just planted and planted and planted, never put anything on the land to, to put anything back in. Any farmer you know, you look at a farm and you'll see certain parts of that farm are planted with crops and other parts are just given to alfalfa and different things that are going to put nutrients back into the soil. Now, the, the connection here is between the bad soil and the good soil. You know what? You might get something to grow in the bad soil, but it's not going to produce the same amount of fruit or be as healthy or actually grow the whole way through the cycle that it's going to do in the good soil. Remember the story, the parable of the different types of soil? You had the wayside, you had the stony ground, you had the... Um, that grew up in the thorns. Here we go. You can't often tell what's going to happen until someone grows up a little bit. Until there's a passage of time. And that's why we need to just be patient and continue serving God. Now, the example here is of the good and the bad seed. In those days, it was literally impossible to make bad, I mean soil, I'm not seed, I'm sorry. It was impossible to take a plot of bad soil and make it good. They just did not have all of the things we do today that could actually put nutrients back in. There was uh, there was no understanding of all of that. They just, God had a plan in the land of Israel. Every seventh year, the land was to rest. And every 49 years, the land was to rest two years in a row. The 49th and the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Kept the soil fertile. Kept you from overgrowing and overproducing. God always has a plan, Amen. Unlike the Democrat. Oops, it keeps moving here. Um, God always has a plan. Now,
Now, the soil shows us that these people were either unsaved or they're truly saved. You can't be halfway saved. There's no middle ground. Either you're saved or you're lost. Many times over the years, people have come to me and they say, Pastor, I'm just doubting my salvation. And I, I believe the worst thing you can do to someone is say, pray a prayer just to make sure. Is that a faith? No. You need to either know whether you're saved or whether you're lost. I remember dealing with one person in particular. It took almost a year for him to figure this thing out. Didn't it, Peter? Just so everybody knows who I'm talking about. But I had to let him understand where he was. Only God can make the good soil, the bad soil good. Amen. Only God can change it. And when we come to God, he does. Forever. Amen. Now, let's go back here. And let's go through this list of things. I told you we would go back and go through the list. And we're just for sake of time, we're not going to take time to go through every reference here. You can look them up. The first thing it says in verse 4, for those who were once enlightened. Now, I want to suggest to you, I want to, to put out before we start here, that in order to do any one of these things, you must be saved first. You must be saved in order to be enlightened. Do you remember what happened when you first understood that you were a lost sinner on your way to hell? It came as quite a shock, didn't it? I mean, it finally grabbed a hold. That's when you were once enlightened. You actually understood your need of salvation. That's why it says once. You only need to do that once, amen? Once it happens, it happens. It says, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, I love the words that are used in the Bible because they're important. They mean things. This idea of tasting something. Dave made an excellent dinner for the preacher's fellowship. And I'm glad I got to taste some of it. There were a few leftovers but not enough to share with everybody in the church so everybody can't taste of the meal that he prepared. You had to be there on Tuesday to taste of it. Now, I could sit here and I could describe to you how good that meal was until you're all so hungry that you would get up and run out of here and, and go down to the pizza place and say, boy, I wish I'd stopped somewhere and served real food and, and got something real to eat. But listen, if you weren't physically there, physically cutting up that food and putting it into your mouth, you could didn't taste it. There's got to be a connection in order to taste something. Amen? And, and by the way, I'm sure most of you are aware, have you ever gotten a really bad head cold and you're sitting there, I can't talk, I can't breathe, I can't smell, and you can't taste either. Because smelling is part of tasting, isn't it? I 
mean, in order to taste something, everything has to be working, doesn't it? Don't gargle with Listerine moments before you sit down to a nice meal. Amen? That's awful. Because everything tastes like Listerine, doesn't it? You've overwhelmed your taste buds. Now listen, we need to taste of the heavenly gift. That means there's got to be a direct connection. That means we've got to get all this other stuff out of the way so that we can grab a hold and wrap our tongue around this thing and enjoy it all the way down. What is the heavenly gift? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Now, do you think if you tasted eternal life, you'd spit it out? How many stories have been written by men talking about the fountain of youth? Searching. I mean, I don't recommend you do this, but some of those medical shows on, I think it's W-O-R, at least the ones that used to be there late at night. Uh, I remember one of those guys just going on and on and on about the human body really should be able to live a thousand years. Oh, I think I read something about that in the Bible somewhere. And then they go on to sell you this whatever it is. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm scared of that stuff. All of those things. I mean, if Art Bell talks about it, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> those of you who know who Art Bell is know what I'm talking about. He's the king of all the nutcases of late night radio. UFOs and space aliens and, and uh, mind control and all of that kind of stuff. He's, if he talks about it, that's absolute advertisement for me. I don't want any part of it. But listen, I want a taste of that heavenly gift, which is eternal life. Amen? Once you've tasted, you have it. It's yours. Look at the next one. And we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Read these passages in John 14. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Ghost. He's going to be with you. He's going to live in you. The world cannot receive him, but you can. If you're made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, that's because you're saved. The Holy Ghost lives in you. That is the baptism of the Holy Ghost the Scripture is talking about. Actually, you're in Him, amen, and He's in you, and it's completely, complete immersion. And the next one is, and have tasted the good Word of God. Remember how confusing this book was before you got saved? Didn't make a bit of sense, did it? Once you get saved, things change. Amen? Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living in you and now He's enlightening you and letting you read and understand the Word of God and it says and of, meaning and have tasted of the powers of the world to come. It's, it's, part, it's implied in 
the language there and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. It means you have a direct connection with what is coming. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to thrill your soul. Amen. It ought to give you peace and hope. It ought to show you and get us off of all of the rotten things that are going on around us. I will tell you one thing. Prophecy must be fulfilled. And the jury is still out as to whether there is a country called the United States of America during the tribulation period. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? But are you going to trust in our government? Or are you going to trust in God? I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to let him take care of it. He says that he's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. That does not mean that we may not have our own suffering that we must go through. But you read the history of the true church of Jesus Christ, and it is a history of suffering and bloodshed and defamation of characters is the lightest thing that happened in those days. Listen. Just remember, there is the powers of the world to come. And guess who's going to be in charge? There is no political party going to be in God's kingdom. Amen? God is not going to allow one vote during the thousand years he rules and reigns because he is not interested in the voice of the people. He already knows what's best for everybody. That's the mistake that despotic dictators take here on earth is they take it upon themselves to be God and to determine what's best for everyone else. Sounds like socialism to me. And it is. You see, the reason man cannot do that and socialism never works is because not a one of us has enough righteousness in our character and in our understanding of life to make decisions for other people. Amen? How many of you have sat down and said, boy, if, if somebody else would just do this, that, that's all they need to do. How many times have we solved everybody else's problems? I warn you, don't try to be God. Taste of the powers of the world to come when God will know what's best for everybody. Amen. Keep the improper focus. And I want to challenge you. You can't do any of these things without being saved. Truly saved. That's why he uses the argument and says, if they shall fall away... Okay, we're going to just make the argument that you can lose your salvation. If you lose it, you're never, ever going to get it back. But the whole problem is you are the one re-crucifying Jesus Christ to yourselves because he is not going to allow himself to be put under your jurisdiction for you to do with him what you please. He is the authority. He was crucified once and he'll never do it again. And if that's not good enough for you... You were never saved in the first place. 
Now, let's see if we can move on. Look at verse 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, what the writer is simply saying is, listen, we believe you guys are saved, even though we're going through this whole thing right here. We believe that you're saved. Here's why. For God is not unrighteous, verse 10, to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. What I have in my outline here, point one under capital C to A, is it is the little things God's asking for. Amen. He wants us to minister to the saints. He wants us to be faithful just to serve him today. He wants us to spend time in his word. You know how many generations of Christians were not able to hold their own personal copy of the scriptures? And yet most of us have two or three Bibles. And we don't take time to read any of them. That's a scary thought, isn't it? We need to understand that God is looking for us to minister to the saints in the past and in the future. He says, ministered, ED, and do minister right now. And the implication is continue to minister. That's one of the reasons why we have a missions conference. Amen? We want to minister to the saints as a church. And as you give, you're partaking in that ministry. That's one of the reasons why we want to be a blessing to Brother Lucas. God sent him our way. We don't know how long he's going to be able to be here in the city. But he's doing something none of us can do, and that's start a Russian language church. I'm so thankful that I could come to you and say, Brother Lucas needed $150 to make his rent payment. Let's do that. And everybody said, Amen, let's do it. And we did it. And we're doing it. And he's holding his first regular service Sunday. Went down and buffed the floors for him. Sanded them down and refinished so he could hold services in there. The place would look decent. If you don't look too close, it really looked okay. But our church paid for that. You know why? Because we want to minister to the saints. Amen? We want to provide a place where people can come and hear the preaching of the Word of God. That's ministering to the saints. We've got two men in our midst that are called to preach. I want our church to give them opportunities so they can learn how to preach so they don't have to do what I did, Brother Ken's here. He remembers what he had to put up with 14 years ago when we were starting out. It ain't nothing like it is today. You say, but it's not much today, but it was a whole lot less back then. Amen? And uh, I'll tell you, uh, I, it is our responsibility to get these men ready for the ministries that God has called them. 
And we're not in a hurry to kick them out, by the way. You guys stay as long as you want. Amen? Listen, those are just some of the examples. And we could spend the whole night talking about ministering to the saints. Amen? It's not just having a closet with clothes and spare food in it for all the people that don't want to go to church and don't care about God but need something at Christmas time or Thanksgiving to give them something. That's not ministering to the saints. Because most of those people aren't saved. Nor do they want to be saved because if they did, they would come during the rest of the year. Amen? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Yes, there is a place for those things. But when we talk about ministering to the saints, we're talking about enabling each other to serve Christ. Do you realize that when we come together like this and you look around, and you see a bigger crowd than you did the week before, that encourages other people to keep coming. That helps the strangers that come in to look around and make sure that we're not some strange little cultic thing. Uh, hey, this is, this is what we need, amen? When you love God, you cannot but help to love other people. It has to happen. Let's move on. I'm going to try to finish here. Verse 11, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, how much of a promise did Abraham receive while he was walking the face of this earth? He bought a cave and a field to bury his wife. That is the only part of the land of Canaan that Abraham had received. And he left a son named Isaac. He left another son named Ishmael, but that was not a story of God's grace. That was not a story of God's provision. That was a story of Mrs. Abraham. That's a story of Sarah's conniving to try to fulfill the will of God by her own device. And we're still paying for that mistake today. Abraham received the promise. It said, in thee shall all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth be blessed. What did Jesus say? John chapter 8, verse 56, I think it is your Abraham. He said, Abraham rejoiced, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad when he saw it. And they said, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was. I am, and they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what he said. I am God. I am your God, the God you claim to worship. And they couldn't believe it because he disagreed with them. Isn't that an awful testimony? A lot of people get offended at this book called the Bible because it disagrees with them. How about you just get your disagreer fixed, amen? Let the Bible be the authority. Amen? Let it teach you. 
what it ought to say. And we come down here and it says, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. When I read that verse, my mind goes back to a picture that was painted in a book of the deck of the battleship Missouri pulled right into Tokyo Bay and the emperor of Japan himself and the great generals of that war came on board that ship and they signed their names to an oath. It was called the Treaty of Peace. And that was the end of the fighting with Japan in World War II. Japan today is our closest ally in that part of the world. Everything that Japan is today is because America rebuilt that country. It was totally, completely destroyed with the exception of its people. There was no, there was no economics. There was no economy in Japan at the end of World War II. There was no food for its people. There was no nothing. They had exhausted everything they had to try to fight that war. And when those atomic bombs went off, that was the end. They couldn't fight anymore. They knew they couldn't. And they surrendered. And they signed an oath. It's not like it is today. Saddam Hussein signed an oath in 1991. What good did it do? He was lying. When men make an honest agreement, that's the end of the problem, isn't it? Let me tell you something. The Bible gives us that as an example and says, wherein God, verse 17, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things. What are those immutable things? The immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel and his word, God's promise. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Now here's who gets the consolation. Those who have fled for a refuge. If you're still trying to partake of this world and and have the things of this world, you're not going to find the consolation that God has for you. You must flee from yourself and the things of this world and the things that you can do and your sin and all of your religiosity and seek the refuge that God has. Out on the plains in Kansas, every farm had a storm cellar. It was a refuge. That storm cellar had a lock on the inside so that you could open those doors and jump down into that pit as it was sometimes under the house or different under the barn, just sometimes dug into the side of the hill and you would jump into that place so that when the storm blew over, you would be safe. It could blow the whole barn down and destroy every house on the property. But if you didn't flee for refuge, you were out in the storm, my friend. Sometimes, this is just free, sometimes we get discouraged with life 
And so we take ourselves out into the storm. Yeah, it's dumber than a box of rocks, it really is, but that's what we do. The Bible says we need to flee for a refuge. If we'll flee for that refuge, then we'll have the strong consolation. The reason we're fleeing is because we're trying to lay hold on that hope that is set before us. What is that hope? My Savior's waiting for me on the other side. You know, I stopped and was just talking with Dave in discipleship, and we we're talking. Most of my family. Boy, it's getting a little scary. I've got more family, I think, on the other side than I do on this side anymore. Listen, it says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before them, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both steadfast and sure, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I've got a refuge from this world. I've got a hope. I've got a Savior waiting on the other side. That's what holds me up. That's why I'm not going to go moping I'll be honest with you, I was really upset at the election turnout. But it wasn't long before the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and said, Man, you just you're putting your hope in the wrong place, you dumb preacher, you. You gotta put your hope in the Lord, amen. If he's not gonna do it, Congress ain't. Come on. Go trust in the UN. Be my guest. You talk to Brother Adam uh, Todorovic that comes in on Sunday mornings. He lived in the Yugoslavia. He'll tell you what the UN did over there. That's present tense, my friend. They're still over there, the blue helmets. It wasn't good. I got a refuge. The storms of this life cannot touch me. I'm safe. I've got a hope. They tell the story. You got minute for time for one more story? I'll try to get you out before 9 o'clock. There was a fella named Sergei Kordakov. He was a Russian agent that went around raking up church meetings. This was back in the late 70s and early 80s. The testimony of the people he was persecuting drove him to read the Bible. And as a communist soldier serving the means of the communists for stamping out religion in the former Soviet Union, he said that he came to the realization they have something that he never did. He began to read the Bible, and I'm not sure exactly when he got saved, but he knew one thing was for sure. He had to get out of Russia. And as he was in the Navy... They came within several miles of the Canadian coast. 
And one stormy night, he jumped over and tried to swim somewhere between five and seven miles through storm-tossed seas and make it to the American coast. He did. They found him half drowned the next day. Of course, they took him to the embassy where he would be safe, and he began to talk to a translator saying, I want to defect, and I want to get here uh, over. And, and uh, they put, it, put his story into a computer. And it said that there is no human being physically capable of doing what he claimed to do. You see, they were a little nervous that he might just be a Russian spy trying to get in and get information. That's what was going on in the early 80s. Then he told them, well, I prayed a lot. And they put that into the computer. And the computer spit out, well, if he had hope, he could have done it. But without hope, physical endurance would have failed. Didn't know computers were that smart, did you? Even a computer understands this, what hope does to the human existence. Amen? I never have to lose hope. Never. I never have to give up on a human being as long as their heart beats. Because God is working. And if they're saved, I never have to worry about it. Because God has already secured them. Amen? And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you give us in your word. And I pray that each one of us here would take advantage of that anchor would take advantage of that refuge, would take advantage of that hope. Lord, would understand what it means to enter within the veil into the very presence of Almighty God. We thank you that you have opened the way that we may be saved. Lord, we ask that we would take this passage and encourage ourselves in your word. That once you've started something, you don't quit. And, Lord, that we would give our lives in your service. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, maybe you need to add to it on your own.